to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Julia. I, hi. Hi. So I'm feeling, <laughs> feeling bad about myself mm. today. And the reason being is because um, I made several mistakes <laughs> mm. in my baseball We're all episode. Human. I know, but I got... What I feel most bad about is that I got many text messages <laughs> mm-hmm. from my father, Dave Tag. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Dave Tag. Um, while he was listening to the episode, it was just like Bing, 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 <laughs> Bing. My phone, like live streaming yeah, his like, reactions. He was live texting me his reactions to the. I mean, he loved the episode. It was his favorite episode so far. Abyssal is abysmal. Yeah. So this is my what is going to be called. My mea culpa moment. Mea culpa. Okay, so Dave Tag wrote me. He said, it is right field, the 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 rarely hit to okay. position. So okay. if you haven't listened to the baseball episode yet, uh, I asked Lauren <laughs> what position on the field doesn't is like for the bad kid. Like <laughs> the, the worst kid on the team in Little League gets stuck out in what field? Yes, and the answer is right field. Okay. So I was correct on that. Alas, that was the last time I was correct. So um, I was talking about Big Poppy, mm-hmm. and uh, Dad said he also played first base sometimes. Okay, including he wasn't outfield. just a, a hitter a guy, designated hitter, and uh, played outfield. Apparently, and this I got. I, not only did I get, I got shit from my dad, <laughs> but I we also got an email from a very oh, nice. Lo- oh, uh, such a nice email! Oh my gosh, it was it's so good. Kind. Um, actually, yeah, it was a beautiful. I'm um, actually shout out to Kara. Thank you so much for your email. And I wrote her back, and I was like, I know I got yelled at by my dad, and you're very, you're much nicer than my dad was about it. Mm. Um, no, I'm kidding. Dad said, uh, "Poppy is Dominican. He is not Cuban." Um, so, apologies to the entire Dominican Republic. Yes, <laughs> Big Poppy is not Cuban. He is from the Dominican Republic. He is a Dominican man. And then Dad said, "This is without a doubt the best podcast so far. Baseball." He's so excited. <laughs> And the other thing that Did I had to... Did you tell him to leave us an iTunes review? I don't think he knows how to do that. How does he listen to us? He listens to us all the time. How? Oh, that, I don't know. They probably stream from the website. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Dave, uh, if you like us so much, figure out how to leave us a review. Yeah, and maybe throw us some cash. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, they... Okay, and also, I, I misspoke when mm. it came to the 2004 world series okay. where the Boston Red Sox won. I said, I, I said that they swept. Apparently they won the American league championship by being down zero to three against the Yankees. So they came back from a zero three. That's not a sweep. That is not a sweep. A sweep means that they just, okay. They just won every game until Great. it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that was what they were down in the American league. So they won the pennant that mm-hmm. way. And then they swept in the World uh, Series. Ah, yes. So, so there's that. That's my mea culpa moment. I'm sure that will not be my last. <laughs> we're all human. Yeah, we're all human. That's that's what that's about. Pobody's so, nerfect. <laughs> maybe we should call it the Pobody's nerfect <laughs> moment. We'll we'll workshop we'll it. See. Um, but yeah, thanks thanks to Dave Tag and also thanks to Kara for emailing and saying, by the way, Big Poppy is Dominican, not Cuban. So. Thank you, Kara. So that is that is the last I will speak of baseball until our next baseball episode. So 
<laughs> which from what i hear is uh coming right around the corner but yeah. we're not gonna spoil anything but no we're not gonna spoil anything mm-hmm. well it's uh this is episode 27 i cannot believe it we've been doing this 27 times yeah and you know what i'm not sick of it that's good <laughs> <laughs> thank god and i hope you guys aren't sick of it either yeah if they're still listening yeah we have we're having a great we got, time we got a core group of listeners now so yeah. thanks thanks to everybody so um this week episode uh, i'm just gonna launch right into it please do. um been kind of interested in getting into russian history a little more wow that it's- came out of nowhere <laughs> that came out of right field hey oh there's my tie-in um so this week, I decided to take a look at uh, the Romanov dynasty in Russia, Ooh. but there is a lot to cover there. So we're, we're going to actually do, we're not going to talk about the beginning. We're not going to talk about the middle. <laughs> we're going to talk about the end of the Romanovs. Great. So uh, the Romanov dynasty in Russia actually started in 1613 and it ended up um, going all the way until 1917. So that's more than 300 years in power for Wait, one family. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. that, that was their entire run. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like one guy was, three, <laughs> was 300 years old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So um, over the three centuries that they were in power, there were 18 Romanovs that took the Russian throne. Um, these included Peter the Great, um, Catherine the Great, Alexander mm. the First, and Nicholas the Second. So um, today we are focusing on the end of the Romanovs, the last of the Romanovs. So um, to start, okay, the word czar. Yes, uh, I learned it spell. I learned how to spell it C Z A R. Some people do it T S A R. You can also do a couple of other different variants. So um, it they are you know you can you basically use them interchangeably. So they're. Um, the same Slavic word, which is the means the title of a Russian, Bulgarian, or Serbian monarch, and it is derived from the word Caesar. Oh, hey! And also similar to the German word Kaiser, also comes from okay. Caesar. So, um, any of those spelling variations are acceptable. Nice. Mm-hmm. So the people. The, the people, the, Romanov. the Romanovs. So Nicholas II, he was born in 1861. Um, he was born to a Danish princess. Um, she was born Dagmar, princess of Denmark. Dagmar. Dagmar. Yeah. You know what? I really like that, actually. It sounds <laughs> badass. Yeah. Dagmar. Yeah. There's not a lot of ladies' names that end in such a strong <laughs> My first daughter. Done. Sorry, Steve. Dagmar. Dagmar. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So uh, Dagmar, princess of Denmark. Um, But when she married um, into the Russian royal family, they changed her name to Maria Fyodorovna Romanovna. Wow. Yeah. Um, And uh, Nicholas II's father was Tsar Alexander Alexandrovich Romanov. Okay. Alexander III, so Nicholas's father, he was an impressive man. He um, dominated others with his size and powerful personality. Throughout the 19th century, Romanov men had the reputation for being big and imposing. But unfortunately, Nicholas took after his mother. Um, He was about five foot six inches tall. So on an online dating profile, he probably would have listed himself as five foot ten. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's very true. (laughs) 
uh, and Nicholas's Romanov uncles were very like large and burly. And so like yeah. when you're picturing like strong strapping Russian men, that's who yeah. most of the Romanov men were except yeah. for poor Nicholas. Oh. So um, Nicholas tried to compensate for his height by working out with weights and athletic equipment, though he remained slight and wiry in physique. Um, his legs were short, um, though this was less apparent when he was on horseback. And mm. um, here's a quotation from the Alexander Palace website. Um, <laughs> quote, Nicholas looked the most regal when mounted. Uh, oh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I don't know if that translation mm, just didn't, didn't maybe work out. Maybe reword that mm-hmm, in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nicholas had a pretty good education. Um, his parents were actually astute enough to see that like becoming a czar in the 20th century would be a lot different than, you know, years past. Sure. Um, so there was actually a really a very real threat of terrorism um, that loomed over the imperial family constantly. Um, one anecdote says that once a bomb blew apart their train car and only Alexander's powerful shoulders kept the roof from caving in what? and crushing the whole family. That is, I mean, I'm sure that's legend, <laughs> but that's so... Just picture it. Oh my yeah. gosh. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So there was always a powerful group of secret police and military guards that protected the royal family. Um, But this meant that Nicholas pretty much grew up in isolation from the outside world. Um, He never really gained a sense of confidence or self-reliance. And he had a lack of friends because he was really like uh, sheltered and stayed with like the European royalty. So he actually was kind of deprived of the way that understanding how his um, subjects would actually live mm. so um he actually began his reign in the autumn of 1894 so he was um uh, in his mid-20s um his accession occurred much sooner than anyone had expected because his father died unexpectedly at the relatively young age of 49 of mm. nephritis so that's like kidney problems like oh, surprise hey. surprise <laughs> you don't now have now good kidneys dead. um so news are he's age 26 he quickly married his fiance over several months um her name was princess alix of hest um so she was the granddaughter of queen victoria of england so she was german uh the couple knew each other from adolescence and upon joining the romanov family by marriage princess alix converted from lutheranism to russian orthodoxy as stipulated by the law and she was renamed alexandra fyodorovna um alexandra gave nicholas four daughters um so there was the grand duchess olga she was born in 1895 um tatiana in 1897 maria in 1899 and anastasia in 1901 before their son alexi was finally born in august 1904 um so as we talked about with um henry the eighth back in the day you know all they wanted was a son. Yeah, And that's the same thing here is Nicholas, okay. he wanted, he needed a son. So every time a daughter was born, like everybody was like weeping and wailing in the streets Jesus. because there wasn't yet an heir. Yeah. Um, so in the family, um, Anastasia and her older sister Maria were known in the family as the little pair. So they got along really well. Uh, The two girls shared a room. They wore like the same clothes and they spent a lot of their time together. And then the older sisters, Olga and Tatiana, um, they were known as the big pair. And the four (laughs) girls sometimes signed their letters. um, They signed letters to people using the nickname Otma, O-T-M-A, which was derived from the first letters of all their names. So they were like really good friend sisters. Like Mm, I don't, I didn't see anything about any of them ever fighting each other or stealing their 
clothes and makeup and yeah. I don't know what other my sister. Well, I don't have a sister, so I don't really know yeah. what sisters do, but I can only imagine. Oh, I she used to my sister beat me up. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Tackle me, I'd scream, she'd pull my hair. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing like these so nothing wonderful like these grand girls. duchesses of Russia. Um so in the nineteenth century, many members of the European royal families were cl- closely related to one another of course um queen victoria was often referred to as the grandmother of europe because her progeny were dispersed throughout the entire continent um through the marriages of her numerous children so along with her royal pedigree and diplomatic relations among the royal houses of greece spain germany and russia victoria's descendants received something much less desirable a defect in the gene which regulates normal blood clotting and causes an incurable medical condition called hemophilia Oh, so they just—they were just bl- like bruisey people. Well, bruisey, bloody hemophilia is—you start bleeding and you can't stop. Oh, yeah, that's true. You yeah, don't but also clot. they're very—you know—yeah, delicate, very delicate. Yes. So, um, this gene actually came from Queen Victoria. Can so, in the late 19th and early 20th century, patients suffering from this disease could literally bleed to death. Oof. And the hemophilia gene was also passed on to Victoria's male grandchildren and great grandchildren through their mothers in the royal houses of Spain and Germany. So, um, Alex of of Germany, her um, own brother died of complications from hemophilia when he was just three years old. So. Um, arguably the most tragic and significant effect of the hemophilia gene occurred in the ruling Romanov family of Russia. So Empress Alexandra learned in 1904 that she was a carrier of hemophilia just a few weeks after the birth of their precious son and heir to the Russian throne, Alexei. So again, this is after four daughters, they finally had a male heir. And then it turns out he has this like terrible incurable (laughs) disease. Um, So because the Russian legal code contained a statute known as the semi-salic law, only males could inherit the throne unless there were no dynastic males left. So if Nicholas II didn't have a son, the crown would pass to his younger brother instead. Mm. So uh, actually, Alexei's hemophilia remained a closely guarded secret of the Romanov family sure, as yeah. a result. So we've all heard of Grigory Rasputin. Oh, yeah. And there's we? a song about him and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Rasputin entered the lives of the Romanovs in 1906 when he helped to heal. I'm using this in yeah quotation marks heal alexi so when doctors failed to cure the boy nicholas ii turned to alternative methods he and alexandra were introduced to a siberian holy man so despite his present day nickname the mad monk he was neither a monk nor a priest um but he was a peasant pilgrim turned preacher and faith healer Mm. um so you know he helped you know he made this boy feel better kind of um suspicious he became really ingratiated himself in with the family Mm. um and and people became very suspicious of this. So soon there were treasonous rumors that began circulating that Rasputin was sleeping with the Tsarina as well as all four daughters. Ew. Yeah. Had actually fathered Alexei and what? held like some mind control over the Tsar. Oh my God. So with World War One raging, Nicholas II's departure for the war front, which I'll talk about in a second, really increased the sense that it was Rasputin who was ruling Russia. Mm-hmm. And some guys got together and decided they needed to kill Rasputin to save the country. Of course. So we have Prince Felix Yusupov. Uh, he was Rasputin's self-confessed killer and the Tsar's cousin. Um, he first published his account of this event from 1916 while living in exile in France in 1927. So according to his version of the event, Yusupov walked Rasputin into the Moika Palace around one in the morning. Upstairs, Yusupov had four accomplices who were laying in wait, passing the time listening to Yankee Doodle Dandy on a gramophone. I love that detail. Um, (laughs) Yusupov explained to Rasputin that his wife had a few friends over and then led his victim down into the basement. 
apartment. He'd spent all day setting the scene and prepared two treats for Rasputin. He had a bottle of Madeira and several plates of pink pedophores, all laced with cyanide. <gasps> oh, no. So, however, the cyanide actually seemed to have no effect on Rasputin. Like, he drank the whole wine, ate all the cakes, and there's just, like, still... Still, Still kicking. kicking. Yeah. Um, so Yusupov excused himself to the other room. Um, he was growing worried and he returned with a gun. He promptly shot Rasputin in the back. Um, the other accomplices drove off that that they just left Yusupov and another man alone at the mansion with what appeared to be Rasputin's corpse. Uh-oh. A strange impulse made Yusupov check the body again. And the moment he touched Rasputin's neck to feel for a pulse, oh Rasputin's eyes snapped open. Oh my God. The Siberian man leapt up, screamed and attacked them. Yusupov claimed that Rasputin stumbled out of the cellar door into the snow, and um, his friend, Vladimir Purushkevich, fired four shots before their victim finally collapsed in a snowbank. Yusupov said that he fainted and had to be put to bed, and the other people (laughs) returned. Uh, They tied the body up, wrapped in a fur coat. Um, They put it in a sack, and they dumped it off the large Petrovsky Bridge into the river below. In the end, Yusupov said it had been the first step to saving Russia. Wow. So this it's kind of like not die. it's kind of like there's this um, creepy advisor that is hanging out with the leader of your country, yeah. and you think that something nefarious is happening, sure. and that he has some weird control over this thing. So you hatch a plot to, to kill murder. him, but yeah. it doesn't go as planned. No, clearly not. The man is <laughs> possessed by the devil. That's going to be my assumption. Assumption. <laughs> Was he dead though? Uh, he, yeah, he died. Like then like oh you know finally because i don't want to go like five minutes from now i'm sitting here drinking a (laughs) seltzer and you're like and then rasputin Rasputin like burst into the the room (laughs) soaking wet with like only one eye you know Uh, so 1916 rasputin's dead okay he is definitely dead dead. um one other term i want to introduce to you now the bolsheviks Okay. So Bolshevik means one of the majority. So this is a faction of the Marxist Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. It was founded by Vladimir Lenin and Alexander Bogdanov, and they ultimately became the Communist Party of Soviet Union. Okay. So the Bolsheviks, they were also known as the Reds. Um, They came to power in Russia during the October Revolution, which I will talk about in a second. And they founded the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. And the Bolshevik secret police was called the Cheka. And they're also anti-Bolsheviks. They were known as the Mensheviks, also meaning one of the minority. They were also called the Whites, Um, though these these people were not necessarily supporters of the Tsar. So you have the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Okay. Bolsheviks, Mensheviks. Yes. Okay. Now, so you got the Romanovs. Yes. You got Nicholas II, his wife Alexandra. You got the four daughters. You got the son Alexei. Okay. Okay. Those are the Romanovs. Great. Great. Now it's time for the Russian Revolution. Oh, boy. So, wait. I, no, sorry. Mm. I thought I didn't have a question, but I do. Okay. So, the Bolsheviks were the communists. Yes. They're like pre-communists. Pre-communists. Yeah. Yes. So, th- you, one would say that the Mensheviks, Mensheviks, did I just say it wrong? The Mensheviks. Mensheviks. They are kind of like the... Um, the monarchy like they're they support the monarchy they don't necessarily support the monarchy but they don't think that they should become communists okay all right yeah good to know thank you so 
the Russian Revolution, when people talk about this, is actually a pair of revolutions in Russia in 1917, which dismantled the czarist autocracy and led to the rise of the Soviet Union. So the Russian Empire collapsed with the abdication of Emperor Nicholas II, which I will talk about in a second. And the old regime was replaced with by a provisional government during the February Revolution in 1917. So so the Russians used an old-style calendar, and so at that point... It was February 1917, but if we talk about with like the new calendar that they use now, it was technically March. So you might see like when you're reading about this, you might see it referred to as like um, O dot S for old style and N dot S for new style. Okay. So just so you know when you're reading it. So February Revolution 1917 might have actually been in March, but yeah, who's sure. to say? So. Um, We had the February Revolution in 1917. So there was a period of dual power that ensued during which the provisional government held state power while the national network of Soviets led by socialists had the allegiance of the lower classes and increasingly the left-leaning urban middle class. So during this chaotic period, there were frequent mutinies, protests, and many strikes. And in the October Revolution, uh, the Bolsheviks led an armed insurrection by workers and soldiers in Petrograd that successfully overthrew the provisional government, transferring all of its authority to the Soviets with the capital being relocated to Moscow shortly thereafter. So the Bolsheviks had secured a strong base of support within the Soviets and as the now supreme governing party established a federal government dedicated to reorganizing the former empire into the world's first socialist republic, practicing Soviet democracy on a national and international scale. Wow. So why did these revolutions happen? Mm. So despite its occurrence at the height of World War I, the roots of the Russian Revolution date further back. So first we have Imperial Russia's failure to modernize its archaic social, economic, and political structures while maintaining the stability of unfailing devotion to an autocratic monarchy. Mm. Um, There were terrible losses during World War I, continuous rumors, and a widespread belief that Rasputin was ruling Russia through Mm. his influence on the imperial couple that caused events to spiral out of control. In an attempt to boost morale and repair his reputation as leader, Nicholas announced in the summer of 1915 that he would take personal command of the Russian army, even though his advisors told him, definitely don't do that. that. Um, And the result was disastrous. So it associated the monarchy with the unpopular war. Mm. Um, Nicholas proved to be a poor leader of men on the front, so he often (laughs) irritated his own commanders with his own interference. Lots of micromanaging. Mm. Um, And being at the front made him unavailable to govern the rest of Russia. Mm Mm-hmm. So can't do it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this left the reins of power to his wife, Alexandra, who was unpopular because she was German uh, and accused of being a spy. And um, that, you know, they said she was under the thumb of Rasputin. Yeah. So the Tsarina proved to be an ineffective ruler in a time of war, announcing a rapid succession of different prime ministers and angering the Duma, who was like the governing body of Russia. Um, And on the home front, commodities became scarce because there was an overstretched railway network. There was famine on the horizon. So the Tsar no longer had the support of the military, the nobility, the Duma or the Russian people. This is... Wow, this is just all Thin system collapse. Ice. Yeah. Yes. So the main events of the revolution took place in and near Petrograd, which is present-day St. Petersburg, which was the Russian capital at the time. So there was discontent with the monarchy. It erupted into mass protests against food rationing. And revolutionary activity lasted for about eight days. It involved mass demonstrations and violent armed clashes with the police and gendarmes, who were the last loyal forces of the Russian monarchy. So the army chief and two of the czar's advisors um, from the Duma, they suggested that Nicholas abdicate the throne. Thought about it, and he did on behalf of himself and of his son, Alexei. 
Nicholas then nominated his brother, the Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich, to succeed him. And the next day, the Grand Duke realized that he would have little support as ruler, so he declined the crown, stating that he would only take it if it was the consensus of the democratic action by the Russian Constituent Assembly. So on... Uh, March 8th, the former czar now addressed with disdain as Nicholas Romanov um, was reunited with his family at the Alexander Palace and he and his family and loyal retainers were placed under protective custody by the provisional government in the palace. So basically, this revolution was happening. Nicholas was like, you know what? You guys hate me. I get it. That's fine. Uh, We're going to step down. Uh, I'm going to can I go like go hang out with my family now? And they're like, yeah, and you'll be under the protective custody of the provisional government. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they were like, too little, too late, Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. Time to. Yep. Time to go. So what happened after this? Let's see. Um, I'm afraid so- to find out. <laughs> After Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne, the State Duma took over control of the country. They established the provisional government and converted the empire into a new Russian republic. And when Vladimir Lenin learned of this from his base in Switzerland, he decided to return to Russia to take charge of the Bolsheviks. Mm. And he served as head of government of Soviet Russia from 1917 to 1924 and of the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1924. And I will plan to talk your ear off about Lenin on another episode. Oh, because there's please. a lot. There's, oh, yeah, we got to sure. dive into that Vladimir Lenin. So, at first, during the spring of 1917, after Nicholas II stepped down, the ex-imperial family was allowed to live in relative comfort at their favorite residence, which was called the Alexander Palace. Um, It wasn't far from Petrograd. And a trusted Bolshevik cobble was dispatched to bring the Romanovs westward. And in April 1918, they endured a terrifying trip by train and carriage to Ekaterinburg. The family was housed in the walled mansion of the Ipatiev House, which was ominously renamed the House of Special Purpose. Uh, It was converted into a prison fortress with painted over windows, fortified walls, and machine gun nests. What? Yeah. The Romanovs received limited rations and were watched by hostile young guards. Yet the family adapted. Nicholas read books aloud in the evening and tried to exercise. Like, this guy. Like, let it go. You're skinny. Everyone knows it. (laughs) The eldest daughter, Olga, became depressed. um, But the playful and spirited younger girls, especially Maria and and Anastasia, began to interact with the guards. And supposedly, Maria began an illicit romance with one of them. And the guards actually discussed helping the girls escape. They were like... Yeah, we hate your father. He's the worst. But like, what did these girls do? Yeah, they they're sweet. They and were just fun. born into into unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. Um. So when this was uncovered by a Bolshevik boss, the guards were changed and regulations were tightened, Uh-oh. and it was like, now you're back. Like you are. Yeah, you're prisoners. You are in. Yep. Now yeah. you're prisoners. <sighs> July seventeenth, nineteen eighteen, at about one in the morning, on July seventeenth, nineteen eighteen. In a fortified mansion in the town of Ekaterinburg in the Ural Mountains, the Romanovs, including ex-Tsar Nicholas II, ex-Tsarina Alexandra, their five children, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and Alexei, and their four remaining servants, were awoken by their Bolshevik captors and told they must dress and gather their belongings for a swift nighttime departure. A man named Yakov Yurovsky, a member of the Bolshevik secret police, was the ringleader of this event. The Romanovs were led into the basement and shot by a firing squad. Each man was meant to fire at a different family member, but many of them secretly wished to avoid shooting the girls, so they all aimed at Nicholas and Alexandra, killing them almost instantly. The firing was wild. The killers managed to wound one another as the room filled with swirling dust and smokes and screams. And when the first volley was done, most of the family was actually still alive, wounded, crying, terrified. Their suffering made worse by the fact that they were, in effect, wearing bulletproof vests. You see... What? 
The Romanovs were famed for their collection of jewelry, and as they left Petrograd with a large cache of diamonds hidden in their baggage, during the last few months of their lives, they'd sewn the diamonds into specially made underwear in case they needed to fund an escape. Get out of here. And on the night of the execution, the children put on their secretly bejeweled underwear, which was reinforced with the hardest material in existence. I should laugh at that. I know. But that's really sad. So the bullets then bounced off of their undergarments. And that that was bad. That's so terrible. That's worse than just dying. Yeah. Because they're getting ricocheted all over the place. Finally, the murderers waded into the gruesome scene of the wounded, bleeding children. Oh, my God. And stabbed them with bayonets and shot them in the heads. The mayhem lasted for about 20 agonizing minutes. 20 minutes? As the bodies were carried out, one or more of the girls cried out, and then they were clubbed on the back of their heads. Oh, my God. This was a massacre. this This wasn't like, now you... Uh, will be executed. This was like a terrible. They didn't know up until like literally the minute. Mm-hmm. And then it was completely screwed up. Yeah. Oh, a lot of the guys that did this were drunk too. So, um, I mean, you'd need a little, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. So these drunk assassins and the Bolshevik thugs then argued about who was to move the bodies and to where. Eventually, the bodies were piled into a truck, uh, which ended up breaking down. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. So out in the woods where the Romanovs, um, they were stripped naked. Their clothing was burned. It turned out that um, the, these guys had selected some mine shafts to bury the bodies in, but the mine shafts were too shallow. So um, in a panic, Yurovsky improvised a new plan. He left the bodies there. He rushed into Ekaterinburg for supplies, and he spent three days and three nights sleeplessly driving back and forth to the woods, collecting sulfuric acid and gasoline to destroy the bodies, which he finally decided to bury in separate places to confuse anyone who might find them. And he was determined to obey his orders that no one must ever know what happened to the Romanov family. He pummeled the bodies with rifle butts, doused them with sulfuric acid, and burned them with gasoline. And finally, he buried what was left over in two graves. Afterwards, a number of people came forward claiming to have survived the assassination. So rumors that they were alive were fueled by deliberate misinformation designed to hide the fact that the family was really and truly dead. Oh, that's interesting. More than 100 imposters alone claimed to be Grand Duchess Anastasia. Um, The best known one of them um, was a lady named Anna Anderson. Um, She... Uh, showed up at like a German mental hospital in the 1920s and claimed to be, you know, have no memory, but she spoke Russian wonderfully. Mm, and, okay. you know, oh, there are photographs that exist of the Romanov family because sure. this was the early 20th century time of photographs. And, you know, she was like, oh, yes, I think this is me. Oh, yeah. yeah. So um, she like she for the rest of her life, she claimed to be uh, the Grand Duchess Anastasia. Wow. Um, several men also claimed to be Alexei and still others claimed to be the other daughters as well. Because they were like, yeah, we know that the Tsar and Tsarina are dead, but maybe some of these children are still Yeah. Dead. In 1979, amateur historians discovered the remains of Nicholas, Alexandra, and three daughters, um, Olga, Tatiana, and Anastasia. In 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the graves were reopened and the identities of the interred confirmed by DNA testing. Um, in a ceremony in 1998, attended by Russian President Boris Yeltsin and about 50 or so Romanov relatives, because there were still a oh, bunch yeah, of them around. out there, um, the remains were reburied in the family crypt in St. Petersburg. Um, in 2007, the partial remains of two skeletons believed to be the remaining Romanov children, Alexei and Maria, were found and similarly tested, and most people assumed they would be reburied there as well. Along with the remains of the two bodies, archaeologists found shards of a container of sulfuric acid, nails, metal strips from a wooden box, and bullets of various calibers. And in 2000, the Romanovs were canonized as passion bearers by the Russian Orthodox Church. So not quite the level of saint, but 
Yeah, like, up there. I'll step down from Saint. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So. Oh my god. They, it didn't end well for the Romanovs. That's and it, sad. I mean, it's sad because it wasn't. <sighs> I want to say it wasn't all their fault. You know. No, I mean, like Nicholas didn't know what he was doing. No, he was just a bad leader. Yeah. You know, in a tough time. Yeah. And you know, he was a he was a foolish monarch who it wasn't trained to be anything yeah. other than a silly skinny man mm-hmm. <laughs> who didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of friends and his wife was from germany yeah and it actually sounded actually one thing i found interesting is it wasn't necessarily an arranged marriage they had met because they were you know in kind of the same social circles and sure. they were actually a love match instead Aww. of like an arranged marriage too that just makes so, it sadder yeah and the, do- the kids didn't do anything no the wrong. kids didn't do anything wrong poor little alexei yeah. with his bleeding, bleeding problem body. yeah oh, poor bud so this is a tough one, Joel. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, but here's don't some, apologize. Bonus, some bonus trivia. Ooh, please. Uh, you know about the Fabergé eggs? I do. So uh, for those who don't, because mm-hmm. Lauren's our resident art Fabergé historian. Egg. Yeah, our resident <laughs> Fabergé collector. Um, a Fabergé egg is a jeweled egg created by the House of Fabergé. Um, virtually all were manufactured under the supervision of Peter Carl Fabergé between 1885 and 1917. The most famous are those that were made for the Russian czars Alexander III and Nicholas II as Easter gifts for their wives and mothers. Uh, the House of Fabergé made a total of 50 of these imperial Easter eggs, and the imperial eggs enjoyed great fame. Uh, Fabergé was commissioned to make similar eggs for a few private clients, including the Duchess of Marlborough, the Rothschild family, and the Super. So following the revolution and the nationalization of the Fabergé workshop in St. Petersburg by the Bolsheviks, the Fabergé family left Russia and the Fabergé trademark has since been sold several times and several companies have retailed egg related merchandise using the Fabergé egg. Mm. But when we talk about Fabergé eggs, we're talking about these authentic ones. So Mm -hmm. of the 65 known Fabergé eggs, 57 have survived to present day. Oh, wow. 10 of the Imperial Easter eggs are displayed at Moscow's Kremlin Armory Museum. And of the 50 known Imperial eggs, 43 have survived. And there are photographs of three of the seven lost eggs. So there's actually only a small number that we don't know what they look like. Oh, that's cool. Um, In America, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, in Virginia, they have five Fabergé eggs. What? Yeah. Wow. And you know what? Somehow, the Cleveland Museum of Art has one. What? Yeah. The Cleveland, the Cleveland Museum? Museum of Art. You know what? I will say the Cleveland Museum of Art, surprisingly, a really nice art museum. They have an excellent collection. I know Cleveland's not your bag. You don't like <laughs> Cleveland. I know. Their art museum's pretty good, I will say. <sighs> Who'd have thunk? I know, right? Mm-hmm. What a strange thing. Mm-hmm. It's so funny how artifacts from various places all over the world just end up in the strangest Yeah places there's also a i think it was a couple years ago there was you know uh, some guy that was cleaning out a storage unit and found like what he thought was a replica fabergé egg and it turned out to be like a real one. Oh my god i love stories like that. oh that's great yeah. so there are technically still like uh, like eight out there that people haven't accounted for oh that's maybe mm, maybe we'll find maybe one maybe we'll find one and then one you day. know what this podcast is over <laughs> <laughs> we're selling those we're moving to maui that's what's happening. Um, uh, the in Minneapolis, there is a Russian art museum. Oh, cool! Um, that's actually in an old church, an old like mission style hmm. church. So it's very strange because you know mission style is very like Southwest, yeah, right. Um, and then you walk in, and it's just all the art is like so dark <laughs> and like There's snowy. Lots of fur. 
and there are people just carrying furs and food and starving and skinny and you're it's it's very beautiful tchaikovsky music is just everywhere everywhere um and they have i think it's a permanent exhibit of not only Russian historic costume, but also Russian lacquer boxes, which oh, are really cool. beautiful. They're like little jewels. And they do have a nice um, gift shop and they sell like Fabergé-like eggs for oh, an astronomical amount of money. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful museum. Well, add it to the road trip. Yeah, road trip to Minneapolis. Um, and speaking of museums, mm-hmm. uh, finally we have the Hermitage. So this is not to be confused with Andrew Jackson's The Hermitage, which is located in Tennessee. Oh, you'll yes, see of it, course. You'll see that one referred to as Andrew Jackson's The Hermitage. So the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia is the second largest museum in the world. Oh, wow. After the Louvre. Um, so the Hermitage's collections include more than 3 million items, including the largest collection of paintings in the world. That's crazy. That's awesome. Um, The collections occupy a large complex of six historic buildings along the palace embankment, which include the Winter Palace, which was the former residence of Mm -hmm. Russian emperors. And by the way, there's a group of about 60 cats that reside in the Hermitage Museum. What? Uh, Yes. They have a press secretary dedicated to the cats. And three people act as caretakers for the cats. Uh, The cats technically live in the museum's basement, but they also appear on the embankment and on the square during the summer. In previous eras, they roamed throughout the museum galleries. They were there specifically to catch mice and have been there for the last 300 years. Sure. I I get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've made the joke. We need a museum cat because Mm -hmm. we have a mouse problem. Full disclosure. But if I know anything about the cats is that they will walk and sleep and lie and put their butt on everything, mm. everything they can possibly get on yep. top of. And I don't know about you, <laughs> but I don't want cat butt on my artifacts, on your art. my precious art. Yep. Well, they're not allowed in the galleries anymore. They're not allowed anymore. Okay. But, um, but past cat butt. Past cat butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Touching Ancient, the largest collection of yeah. paintings in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's it's funny that they have their own press secretary That's and um, they have also introduced a program where you can like adopt a hermitage cat okay. to like, you know, do snowy. Some, yeah. The hermitage mm-hmm. cat mm-hmm. and like send them money and you get um, like you adopt a child, like a homeless child. <laughs> yeah. Like you, and then you get pictures and like you a Christmas too card. can provide caviar for <laughs> this cat at the Royal Palace. I'm sure they get caviar. Those spoiled little assholes. <laughs> On that note, mm. that's that's the end of my end of the Romanovs. That was very interesting. Sorry, there's a lot of facts to cram in there. And oh my gosh! Just if you know who some of these people are, and um, and you know what, if you didn't get it the first time, rewind, <laughs> listen to it again. <laughs> it's free. You can nice. do it. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's time for my quiz. Ooh. It's called "From Russia with Love." This is a quiz on Russian athletes and James Bond films. Yes. Question one. Whose name is missing from the following list? Pierce Brosnan, Sean Connery, Daniel Craig, Timothy Dalton, Roger Moore, David Niven. Question two. Which NBA team owned by Russian billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov has had at least two of the most famous Russian NBA players on its roster, including Timothy Mozgov and Andrei Kirilenko? Question three. The only James Bond film theme song to reach number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 was by what 1980s new wave band? Question four. 
Pointedly, this answer is not Anna Kornikova. Which female Russian tennis superstar who became the world number one at age 18 in 2005 failed a drug test at the 2016 Australian Open and was suspended from playing tennis for two years by the International Tennis Federation? Question five. Which marvelous British author, best known for works full of terrible adults and whimsical children, wrote the screenplay for the 1967 film You Only Live Twice? Question six. This pair of Russian ice skaters were the 1988 and 1994 Olympic champions and four-time world champions in pair skating before a massive heart attack killed the male partner at age 28 in 1995. His widow returned to the ice with much fanfare, wrote a best-selling book about the love of her life, and continues to perform in honor of her first husband. Name either the female or male of this legendary pair of Russian skaters. Question seven. Harold Sakata, a Japanese-American actor and 1948 Olympic silver medalist in weightlifting, played the popular henchman odd job in what Bond film? Question eight. Three true or false statements about the miracle on ice, the legendary ice hockey game played during the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. First, both the U.S. and the USSR teams were made up entirely of amateur players. Second, the game referred to as the miracle on ice was the final game in the tournament with the winning team receiving the gold medal. And third, Al Michaels, the television commentator for ABC, famously declared in the final seconds, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Question nine. The head of MI6, the secret intelligence service, is the supervisor of James Bond and has been played on screen by Bernard Lee, Robert Brown, Dame Judi Dench, and Rafe Fiennes. What is this character's mighty succinct moniker? And finally, question 10. I must break you. Ivan Drago is a fictional Russian heavyweight boxer portrayed by Dolph Lundgren. In what film of the Rocky franchise did he make his first appearance? I'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. Time oh for gosh. your answers. I forgot how little I knew about any of this, but <laughs> please, I'll try. All right. Question one. Whose name is missing from the following list? We have Pierce Brosnan, Sean Connery, Daniel Craig, Timothy Dalton, Roger Moore, David Niven. You know what? While When you started, I was like, I bet it's Timothy Dalton. And then you said Timothy Dalton, and now I have no idea. Okay. So I don't know. The missing bond is George Lazenby. George Lazenby. Wasn't he 
Like, wasn't he in like two or something? One. One. He was Bond in a single film, 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm. So prior to appearing as Bond, Lazenby was a model and he appeared in a lot of advertising. And prior to the release of the film, Lazenby announced he no longer wished to play the role of James Bond, saying that the producers made me feel like I was mindless and they disregarded everything I suggested simply because I hadn't been in the film business like them for about a thousand years. (laughs) Get over yourself, Lazen B. Yeah, and he's his. I mean, like that was a big mistake. Yeah, you know, because there's been like a couple dozen um, Bond movies at this point. Yeah, and you know, Sean Connery became like a bazillionaire. Yeah. for being James Bond for all those years, and he actually took over again after Lazen B. Again, you know, well, yeah, but, because he knew what side he knew. Yeah, what he was, was like, up. actually, I'll be back for this. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I'll take that millions of dollars that you're leaving on the table. <laughs> Question two, uh, dreaded basketball question. So which NBA team owned by Russian billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov has had at least two of the most famous Russian NBA players on its roster, including Timothy Mozgov and Andrei Kirilenko? I pick a team. Just pick a team. Uh, The Knicks. Close. The Brooklyn Nets. Oh, wow. Oh, you know what? That wasn't even anywhere in my brain. They're geographically very close to one another. That's true. No, you're very, you're true. That's That's true. So. Uh, yes, Russian billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov owns the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn Nets. Okay, good. Question three. The only James Bond film theme song to reach number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 was by what 1980s new wave band? Is it Diamonds Are Forever? No. Um, is it Wings? <laughs> it is Duran Duran. Duran Duran did a song? Which they, song? They did the theme song to 1985's A View to a Kill, starring Roger Moore in his last Bond film. Huh. What a thing. 2012 Skyfall, I found this interesting, only made it to number eight on the charts in the US, but that became the first Bond theme to win at the Golden Globes, the Brit Awards, and the Academy Awards. So, But the one that made it to number one in the US was Duran Duran's A View to a Kill. Well, Duran Duran was very popular at mm-hmm. that time. And what, you know what? You could make the argument that Adele was very popular during the Skyfall years. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Yeah. I just, th- just thought that that was interesting. It's a good bit of trivia. Question four. Pointedly, this answer is not Anna Kornikova. Which female Russian tennis superstar who became the world number one at age 18 in 2005 failed a drug test at the 2016 Australian Open and was suspended for playing tennis for two years? I, you know what? You said Anna Kornikova, and I was like, it's I Anna said Kornikova. Pointedly, the answer is not <laughs> no, Anna I Kornikova. Know, I, uh, I don't know. Maria Sharapova. Maria Sharapova. So uh, in March 2016, Sharapova revealed that she had failed a drug test at the 2016 Australian Open, testing positive for meldonium, a substance which had been banned earlier that year by the World Anti-Doping Agency, and she was suspended from playing tennis for two years by the ITF. Her suspension was later reduced to 15 months, starting from the date of the failed test, and she returned to the WTA tour in April 2017. Um, she's, she's very good at tennis. In 2011, she was named one of the 30 legends of women's tennis past president and future what? by time magazine in march 2012 she was named one of the 100 greatest of all time by the tennis channel what and according to forbes she has been named highest paid female athlete in the world for 11 consecutive years and she earned about 285 million dollars including prize money since she turned pro in 2001 are you serious that the highest paid woman is not serena williams no uh, goddess serena williams no yeah <sighs> 
That's crazy. I had no idea. Well, I don't yeah. know anything about tennis. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. But so I was like shocked that yeah. like, I had heard her name before, but I didn't really. Sure. She was like so good and was good at, you know, getting getting paid. Getting that, that Get paper. That sweet tennis ball cash. <laughs> that sweet clay court cash. So... <laughs> Oh man, I'm trying to make a, <laughs> trying to get there from Wimbledon, but don't worry. It's okay. We'll workshop it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Question five: okay. Which marvelous British author, best known for works full of terrible adults and whimsical children, wrote the screenplay for the 1967 film "You Only Live Twice"? Was it Roald Dahl? Yes. 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 Great. Question six. This pair of Russian ice skaters were the 1988 and 1994 Olympic champions and four-time world champions in pair skating before a massive heart attack killed the male partner at age 28 in 1995. Name either the female or male of this legendary pair of skaters. I'm, I'm just going to say Oksana Bayul, but I'm sure that's wrong. It is wrong. Uh, they, <laughs> she's all, I think she's also Ukrainian. Um, this pair of skaters is Ekaterina Gordieva okay. and Sergei Grinkov. Mm, I, I didn't know the male name, but I knew who she was. Okay. Um, so the pair was best known for their quiet glide over the ice. Quote, Grinkov and Gordieva had something special that was more easily appreciated in person. They didn't make noise when they skated. They moved so fluidly that their blades whispered over the ice rather than scratching at it. Isn't that precious he died at 28 yes so they were training in lake placid in 1995 on the ice he had a heart attack (gasps) he died in her arms oh no yeah it was like i was actually um some type of congenital heart defect that he didn't know he had and they have since like named that defect after After him him? yeah what a russian way to go yeah so romantic so um, Gordieva, his widow, along with an all-star cast, skated a tribute in his honor titled Celebration of a Life in February 1996, and it was later televised. Gordieva also authored a book about their life and partnership titled My Sergei, A Love oh. Story, which was later turned into a television movie docudrama titled My Sergei. Since 2001, Gordieva has been married to Russian ice skater Ilya Kulik. Okay, so good to know. She knows what she likes. She likes a Russian skater, am hey. I right? hey but that yeah, it's um, she's she still skates today. She's amazing and beautiful. I mean, she's not competitive skater anymore, but, but like she performs and yeah. she's wonderful. Question seven. Harold Sakeda, a Japanese-American actor and 1948 Olympic silver medalist in weightlifting, played the popular henchman Ajab in what Bond film? I'm torn between... <laughs> I'm torn between Moonraker and Octopussy. And I'm gonna say octopusy because moonraker was in space the answer is goldfinger 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 so the film also stars honor blackman as bond girl pussy galore and gritty frobe as the Ugh. title character auric goldfinger and along with shirley eaton as the iconic bond girl jill masterson she's the one that's painted gold and oh, you know yeah. s- supposedly suffocates under that and all that's that. some actually so, impossible yeah, so odd job makes his debut in um goldfinger Interesting. Okay, good. And to he know. was uh, like also voted like the best Bond henchman of all time too. Really? Ajay? Yeah. He's, okay. Yeah. He's that bowler hat. That yeah. Razor I mean, bowler hat, and he's just like he doesn't talk much, and he's just very strong. But that's the best Bond villain. Hey, I didn't. The vote. guy who cuts people with him. his bowler hat. <laughs> you can just like knock it out of the way, you know. Whatever. Question eight: Three true or false statements about the miracle on ice. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm also, gonna... have you seen Miracle? No, I haven't. <laughs> I 
know, this, this podcast is, go is going to tear us apart, <laughs> Julia. <laughs> There's like three movies that are my favorite movies of I all know. time, and Lauren hasn't seen any of them. Wait, what other two are they that I haven't seen? Goodfellas. Oh, yeah, that's true. I haven't seen it. <laughs> By the way, that was another thing my dad texted me. He was like, that's it. For your penance, you have to watch Godfather 1 and 2, not 3, and you have to watch <laughs> Moonstruck. I was like, I've already seen those. He was like, no, that's your penance. <laughs> and Goodfellas. Anyway. Well, let's. you got 50-50 yeah, on all these. Okay. Yes. Three true or false statements about the miracle on ice. Okay. First, both the U.S. and the USSR teams were made up entirely of amateur players. True. That is false. The USSR team was mostly professional players with significant international experience, while the US team was the youngest team in the tournament and exclusively amateurs, mostly like college players. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Statement two, the game referred to as the Miracle on Ice was the final game in the tournament with the winning team receiving the gold medal. Um, I'm going to say false. It is false. The game was part of a round robin tournament. So this was actually the second to last game played by the U.S. team. Following the game, the U.S. went on to clinch the gold medal by beating Finland in their final match of the tournament, while the Soviet Union took the silver medal by beating Sweden. So this tournament wasn't kind of the same as you see nowadays where like the final four, you know, the best two would play for gold and silver. Instead, this was you played for gold and bronze and then you played for silver in fourth place. Oh, that's weird. But anyway, so anyway. And the third statement, Al Michaels, the television commentator for ABC, famously declared in the final seconds, do you believe in miracles? Yes. I'm going to say true on that. It is true. Yeah. So Al Michaels only got the job as the play-by-play man for the ice hockey um, games at Lake Placid because he was the only member of ABC's announcing team who had previously called the sport. (laughs) Um, Michaels was named Sportscaster of the Year in 1980 for his coverage of the event, and the victory became one of the most iconic moments of the games and in U.S. sports. In 1999, Sports Illustrated named the Miracle on Ice the top sports moment of the 20th century. Wow. In 2008, the International Ice Hockey Federation named the Miracle on Ice as the best international ice hockey story of the past 100 years. And of the 20 players on Team USA, 13 eventually went on to play in the NHL. Um, And uh, a flood of ex-Soviet Union stars also joined the NHL after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Oh, okay, wow. Question nine, the head of MI6, the Secret Intelligence Service, is the supervisor of James Bond and has been played on screen by Bernard Lee, Robert Brown, James G.G. Dench, James G.G. Dench, <laughs> James G.G. Dench, and, and Ralph and Ray Fiennes. What's this character's mighty succinct moniker? Uh, that is M. It is M. Great. <laughs> and question 10, I must break you. Ivan Drago is a fictional Russian heavyweight boxer portrayed by Dolph Lundgren. In what film of the Rocky franchise did he make his first appearance? I'm going to say Rocky 2. The answer is Rocky 4. Wow. 1985. So in this film, Apollo Creed comes out of retirement and challenges Ivan Drago to an exhibition match. And Drago ends up killing him during the fight. What? That's how Apollo Creed dies. He gets killed in a match by Ivan Drago. Spoiler alert. I haven't even seen Rocky. (laughs) This movie is from 1985. (laughs) (laughs) I am pretty sure... So that's on me. Yeah, that's, that's on, on you. Me. Um, and to avenge Apollo Creed's death, Rocky travels to the Soviet Union to fight Ivan Drago on his home turf in Moscow. And Rocky defeats Drago by KO in the 15th and final round in Amazing. a dramatic ending. So dramatic. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't have to see it. Yeah. So that's my quiz. That was good. That was good. And you know what? I'm glad I knew more than... <laughs> <laughs> than I than thought, thought I did. Yeah. I've only seen like three Bond films because I find them, and this is going to make us lose some listeners. Mm. I find them kind of boring. 
because there's so much going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but they're also, in a way, they're slow paced. Yes. I, I need movies that have a lot of dialogue. When it's a lot of like walking through hallways and yeah. looking at things, it doesn't get my juices going. No. No uh, juices for Julia. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks for listening. So, um, last week we uh, asked for you to give us some uh, listener submitted trivia, and and you guys came through. Yeah. So I have one little tidbit, and I think okay. So this is going to be our listener submitted trivia. How's yeah, that? that's good. Okay, great. So we'll do that at the beginning. <laughs> uh, so this little piece of uh, information is from L Town Anne from uh, Twitter. Twitter. She is a listener and a frequent Twitter engager with us. Shout out. Shout out to L Town Anne. Um, she recently told us that the Vatican, uh, the ATMs at the Vatican are in Latin. <laughs> So if you visit the Vatican and you good. need to get some uh, some euros out, Oof. and you do you not better, speak Latin, yeah, you better grab a priest. <laughs> you better be like, "Excuse me, Senora, could you please come over here and help me out?" <laughs> wow, yeah. So uh, shout out to L Town Anne on that because yeah, that's cool. a cool piece of uh, trivia. Yeah, I also wanted to shout out this week Kathleen B has been with us from the very beginning. Oh, she's a shout super out fan. to Kathleen. Also to Heather H and Kara S. Thanks for getting in touch with us. And yeah. Sending us some nice comments. We always get so excited when we get an email or a, or a tweet. <laughs> We're like, oh, yay. I send screenshots to Julia of our t- yeah. t- tweets. And how so. can you get in touch with us? You want to know? Yeah. You can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. We have a Facebook page, Misinformation, a trivia podcast. We have a website www.misinfopod.com. Yes. What else, Lauren? Well, Julia, if you want to listen to us, you can get us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. You can get us at our RSS feed, which I just recently learned is a thing. <laughs> I, 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 you know what? I've been saying like, oh yeah, RSS feed. Sure, RSS feed. Like I knew what it was and it turns out I had no idea and Julia had to explain it to me. So thank you to Julia. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also stream from our website. Yes. Um, please listen, subscribe, Send us a, a review. That would be wonderfully appreciated by the both of us. Yes. So awesome. Yes. Thank, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Dust well, of Adanya. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.